So um, I'm curious, how many of you are members of Costco? Yeah, that, that's probably about normal. Um, so some of you aren't, uh, but um, if, you, if you've been to Costco recently, have you noticed anything different um, involving your membership? Well, there was a story in the newspaper, if you didn't notice, it said that the um, that Costco is cracking down on membership sharing. So now they have people stationed at the uh, at the self-checkout to, to double-check that you are who your identity card says you are. So so um, they're trying to avoid um, imposters. And I'm curious, how many of you have been an imposter at some point? Not necessarily with, with Costco, but maybe, maybe you share a, a Netflix password with somebody who's not a member of your immediate family. I see some grins there. Um, so uh, maybe you crashed a wedding at some point or you, you, some other situation where you were, you were not in a place where you really belonged, but you were there anyway. Um, uh, so has anybody got that experience? Or maybe maybe for, for you, you've, it's the other way around. You were in a place where you belonged, but you didn't feel like it. You felt like you were an imposter, even if you weren't. Um, sometimes we feel that way. Um, and um, I'm reminded uh, of, a, of a thing that happened right after I got hired a couple, well, many years ago now. Gosh, time flies. Um, so uh, I had been hired by this company, um, and the same week, the same week that I showed up, uh, they had a big party to celebrate shipping their product. And my my boss, my new boss, said, um, you're invited, you know, you're, you're welcome to come. But I didn't feel that way. I didn't feel like it was really my party. I hadn't had anything to do with shipping that product. So it's like, I just felt like, you know, no thanks, I will just skip the, the party. It's not really my thing. So, so uh, maybe you felt that way. Maybe you felt like, uh, yes, you're welcome. Nobody's gonna stop you from attending. But on the other hand, it's not really your thing. Maybe, maybe you can relate to this. Um, I think this is a human, a human norm. We all have, um, uh, antenna, you know, that help us to know, are we in the group or out of the group? I think that's just the way people really are. Um, it goes back, uh, probably as long as there have been people. This sense of, am I, am I in the tribe or am I out of the tribe? You know, do I belong here or not? Um, and, um, it certainly is, I don't know if it goes back, you know, how far, but it certainly goes back to the, the, the times of the Bible. And so, um, uh, we see that it was something that they were wrestling with in the, uh, first century, um, when Paul wrote this letter to, uh, the, the Galatians. It was really one of the biggest challenges that the church faced as, as the movement of Jesus, uh, spread out of the Holy Land and crossed around, um, in different places in the ancient world. Uh, this was one of the biggest challenges that the the church faced, and Paul uh, Paul was writing about it um, in in this letter and elsewhere. Paul writes about this this challenge of who belongs to the people of God, who really who really is is a part of the community of the people of God, uh, who's in and who's out. And Paul's Paul's um, answer, the the answer we're going to look at, is interesting. First, because because Paul's position was the one that was eventually adopted by the church. Um, Paul, uh, shortly after he wrote this letter, Paul, Paul traveled to Jerusalem, and um, they, they had a they had a conference there between him and the other apostles. Is this your understanding of what Jesus taught us? And they they agreed it was, and so that became the the standard understanding of of what constitutes what what are the criteria for being part of the community of God. So that's what happened. But um, but it's also interesting because even though. It's been kind of the the way Christians do these things for for two thousand years. Christians still struggle to do it well. 
So for both reasons, um, because it's it's what we're told to do, but also because um, we have so much trouble with it. Uh, let's let's look now at the um, passage we read um, uh, from um, Galatians. So so we're picking it up um, halfway through. If if you weren't um, here uh, the previous week, so it's uh, the the chapter one and two we've already dealt with those over online and you can catch up there but we're picking up kind of the centerpiece of his store of his of his um, argument so he begins in verse one he says you are rational Galatians who put a spell on you now that doesn't sound like somebody who's trying to make friends or or convince people but remember the um, the argument that Paul is making is he's saying you you irrational Galatians, who put a spell on you? You do belong to the community. He's not saying you're irrational and therefore you're not part of the community. He's saying you're you're irrational because of course you belong to the community. So um, he says Jesus was put on display as crucified before your eyes. He says this is the center of my my proclamation of the gospel. Uh, when I went to your towns and and started your churches, this is what I I presented to you. I I. Put Jesus on display as crucified before your eyes, and somehow you are so so caught up in this spell that you're under that you you have forgotten that this was the centerpiece of what I had to say. So he says. Um, so he says, uh, verse two. He says, I just I just want to know this from you: Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so irrational after you started with the Spirit? Are you now finishing up with your own human effort? So, so Paul is referring to something we don't really know what, uh, but they had some experience that Paul's aware of. Paul knows what happened to them, and he knows they know what happened to them. They had the, the they, they received the Spirit, whatever that means, and he's saying, did did that happen because you started to obey the 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 Jewish law? Did you start obeying Torah, or was it because you believed? The message that I proclaimed to you about Jesus crucified, he knows. He knows the answer, and he knows they know. The answer is no. We receive the Spirit simply based on our belief, not because of um, because of uh, starting to do the works of the law. So Paul says, um, if you have received the Spirit, you know, if you've experienced God working in your midst, why would you say, okay, that's fine. Now from here we'll take it and we'll do things in our own flesh. We'll do things by ourselves. Why would you ever go that direction? He's, you know, that, you know, are you so, are you so irrational? Now, what does he mean by receive the Spirit? We don't know. We, we can get hints from other letters and from, from the book of Acts. And so we, we, um, we, we have to kind of guess what he means. And there's a, a variety of, of, uh, interpretations. At one end, uh, people say it was a fairly, um, you know, uh, very real to them, but maybe to an outside observer, it wasn't all that flashy. Something that they 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 were convicted by the Spirit that what they believed was true, and uh, that they then experienced the support of the community. So it could be something like that, much more like what I think a lot of people experience in church today. Um, uh, and Paul talks about experience. This word experience, he says, did you experience so much for nothing? So verse 4 did you experience so much for nothing? I wonder if it really was for nothing. So Paul's saying, did you experience? Now, maybe that was some some great uh, special effects, you know, the Spirit doing all kinds of things. But maybe um, the, the word experience here is a very broad word, and it can mean experience in a good way or in a bad way. So it can mean, 
did you suffer? So maybe Paul's referring to to uh, the support of the community when they face some kind of persecution or discrimination. So did you experience that for nothing? So maybe that's what he's talking about, the Spirit. The Spirit supported them in their, that 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 particular need. Uh, other other Christians say, no, this was a much bigger thing. It was more like we read about at Pentecost, the, the coming of the Spirit with fire and and dove and, you know, uh, ecstatic experience with with um, a charismatic uh, uh, um, phenomena, you know, talking in tongues and prophecy and stuff like that. We don't know. Um, those of us who are Presbyterians in this room uh, sometimes are called the frozen chosen. So I think we tend to lean in the direction of it was a more of a sedate sort of experience of the Spirit. But, you know, we don't know. Paul doesn't tell us. So maybe it was something much more uh, aligned with what Pentecostals talk about today. So we don't know. So he says, does the one providing you with the Spirit and working miracles, that would be an argument for the big the big um, experience, does, does that one do it because you do the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So again, I know how this works. I know what happened when I was there, and so do you. It wasn't because of anything you did. It's because of something God did in your midst. And at this point, you know, we're, we're reading a letter, so we have to guess what the Galatians were thinking. And so, so at this point, I imagine the Galatians saying something like, yes, we did experience the Spirit. We, you know, we now understand, you know, uh, essentially everybody in that culture would have known the Jews had a different relationship with their God than pagans did, uh, with their gods. That in, you know, in pagan mythology, the one thing you wanted to do was stay off the gods' radar. If, you know, Jupiter found out about you, nothing good could come from that. You know, just better off if he doesn't even know you're there. Don't get him angry. Offer the sacrifice and that's enough, right? That was really the way most uh, pagan religions operated in that world. And we can imagine the Galatians saying, now we understand why you Jews are different. You have a completely different relationship with your God than the ones that we were taught. You have a God who loves you. It's like, we want this. And and now the Spirit has really convicted us of what that's like. You you bet we want it. So when these teachers showed up, you left Paul, and you know you went to the next town or whatever. But when you left... Others came in behind you, teachers who said the way to have that experience, that, that experience, that relationship with God is to obey the Jewish law. So we can imagine them saying something like that. That's why we're doing this. We're not irrational. We want what we experience. You know, we want to have that kind of relationship with God. That's great. And so, so at this point, Paul says, he says, um, yes, I bet you do. It's a great relationship to have. But have you ever met a Jew? Do you know our story? I mean, have you ever like looked at the story of what happened with the Jews? He says, understand that in the same way that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as, as righteous, those who believe are the children of Abraham. He says, in our story, the very beginning of the story of the Jews, uh, God called Abraham and promised him a family and land. He said, this is what you're going to get. And, you know, not today. It's a promise for the future. And Abraham believed God. And that is the basis of, that is what set Abraham right with God. It's the basis of the relationship that Abraham had with God. And so he says, those who believe are the children of Abraham. They are they are like Abraham. They they have that same thing in common with him, but they're actually his children, as he'll as he'll explain. 
So he says, um, but when it saw ahead of time that God would make the Gentiles righteous on the basis of faith, Scripture preached um, Scripture preached the gospel in advance to Abraham. So Abraham, you know, is 2,000 years before the time of Christ. Uh, he, he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know anything about the gospel. But uh, Paul says God spoke the gospel to him when, he, when God promised him, all the Gentiles will be blessed in you. That that was actually the good news about Jesus in a form that Abraham could understand. All the Gentiles will be blessed in you. And so he says, um, uh, that is uh, the basis of our relationship with with God. The 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 this idea of trusting God. Those who believe are blessed together with Abraham, who who believed. This is the basis of the relationship that Jews have with God. So he says, the teachers, the teachers who came to your town and told you you needed to start obeying the law. Did they did they tell you did they tell you that it works? Because because they told you you need to obey the the law like us Jews, but we don't. This has been this has been the problem um, all along. He says um, those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it's written everyone is cursed who does not keep on doing the things that have been written in the law scroll. He says. You know, if, if we read the book of Deuteronomy, there's a long section starting in, in chapter 27 where where uh, God lists all these blessings that will come on, on the Jews as they go into the promised land. If they do what God says, there's all these blessings that will accrue to them. And if they don't do what God says, there's all these curses that will come upon them, right? So that's the idea. Everyone is cursed who doesn't. This is the, the thing the Levites would, would read to them. And if they if they obey it, they get blessed. And if they don't, they're cursed. And so Paul um, is saying, this is what the prophets have been warning us. Uh, from, from the very earliest prophets to the latest, from, from Habakkuk and Ezekiel to Daniel, uh, this has been the message of the prophets. You're not obeying the law. This is, this is why lay movements like the Pharisees came along that said, hey, we're not obeying the law. We need to try harder. We need to do more because everybody knew they were not obeying the law. So um, they would have understood, we are, you know, essentially, go ask a Jew. Go find a Jew and ask him, are you being blessed right now? Is God blessing you right now? Is God fulfilling all of those promises that are in uh, Deuteronomy 27? And they would say, no, no, we we have failed to keep the law. And as a result, we've experienced those curses. We've, we've been exiled in Babylon. When we finally returned from uh, exile in Babylon, we were oppressed by the Persians, and then by the Seleucid Greeks, and then by the Hasmonean pretenders, and then by the, the, the Roman Empire. We've been, we've been denied all of the blessings. We are being cursed. They would have understood. This is, this is our problem. The, the law is fine, but we just haven't been obeying it. And as a result, we're experiencing these curses. So, Paul quotes another verse. He says, "Since no one is made righteous by law, as far as God's concerned, we know that because otherwise we'd be being, God would be blessing us in a way that He has not been. It's clear that the righteous one will live on the basis of faith. So there is still a path to being blessed, but it's not on on the basis of obedience to the law. He says the law isn't like that. The law, you know, you've got to do it or else. He says." 
Um, he quotes from Leviticus, the one doing these things will live by them. Only the one doing these things will live by them. That's the, that's the, the, the offer of the law, that if you don't obey it, then you will be cursed. And so that is the problem. The problem is not that there's anything wrong with the law. There's all kinds of blessings that are promised in the law as well. The law is fine. The problem is people. The problem is they don't keep the law. So, he says, we needed to be rescued. We were under a curse from the law until someone could rescue us from it. So he says, and now he gets back to that verse 1 where he just kind of dropped the subject about Jesus being crucified. He comes back to it now. This is the point. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That we were, we were stuck. You know, we had no hope of obeying the law, and the proof is all around us. We're being oppressed. Uh, we have failed to be blessed the way God had promised. So we know that we are, you know, we know personally, I mean, just ask us, but we, we know culturally that, that God is not fulfilling these promises. So we needed to be rescued, and Christ rescued us. And the way he did is by becoming the curse for us. He took the curse that we were experiencing, he took it on himself. And we know that because uh, it also says in the scriptures that um, everyone is cursed who, um, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. That in the ancient uh, or Hebrew world, the once once you, you executed, they had capital punishment, but then you displayed the body on a tree. So that's the way that, you know, people would learn their lesson. And so they had to take it down by nightfall, but it was a way of everybody knew, don't, don't mess with us. The Romans, you know, tinkering the way they did, you know, perfecting aqueducts and all the fun things the Romans did. They said, hey, that's a great idea, but let's nail him up there before he's dead. So that's the big, you know, the big innovation that the other cultures had is we're not just going to display the body. We're going to, we're going to display the living person and then the body. So, so Paul says, yeah, everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. We know that. And so when Jesus hung on the cross, he took our curse, the curse of the law, on himself. He redeemed us so the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus and that we would receive the promise of the Spirit. So the the picture here, you know, if we, if we, if we picture the story of, of Israel, in, in, when they are freed from, from a bondage in Egypt, what is the story? They they go through the Red Sea. God has promised to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, but they're not there yet. They're in the wilderness, right? And some of them say, well, let's go back. But God is there. God is there providing for them, giving them manna in the wilderness, uh, you know, water and all the other things God does as he leads them to the promised land. And God's presence is there with them. God is present to them as a pillar of uh, a cloud by day and fire by night. Uh, God is present to them as a as a kind of a promise or a down payment on the the promise of land, the land that they're coming to. So God is already there among them, um, guaranteeing this promise. And Paul Paul is is saying this is what our situation is like. Jesus has come. We are freed from the law. We are freed from from the curse that the law represents. But we have not experienced all that, that God has for us yet. It is still a promise. The kingdom has come, but it hasn't come in its fullness. The new age is upon us, but the old age is still here. So he says, 
that is our situation. And like Israel in the wilderness, we have God's presence with us. We have the Spirit working in our lives. So that is the position that Paul takes. The kingdom is here. The Spirit is our guarantee that the kingdom will come in its fullness in God's time. So that is the position that Paul takes. He explores it some more in the rest of this chapter. We're going to look at that next week. But that is the, the position that he will take to Jerusalem. It's the position the church will agree. Yes, that's that's our understanding as well. And that is why nobody asked you to keep kosher. right? Nobody has said, did you have any bacon this morning? Because that would be a wrong answer, you know, to say yes. No one is asking you, are you, you know, wearing, you know, wool and lins, uh, lins, uh, what is it, linen, uh, at the same time, garments made out of both. No one is asking you to keep kosher because this is the position that the church adopted. And yet, like I said, the church struggles to do it because we don't ask about bacon or, or, or uh, linen and wool. Instead, we say, you know, you're doing this. Or you, you, you need to start doing this. You know, you're, you're doing it wrong. You need to start doing this. You need to stop doing that. We come up with new kinds of laws for people to obey. That if you do this, then you will belong to the community of the children of Abraham. We do this all the time. Even when we talk about faith, we say, we say, well, yes, okay, it's all about faith. But here's here's what faith means. It means praying this prayer, these words. You know, you must pray these particular. And if you haven't prayed that prayer, then you're not saved. You're not part of the community. And that's not the way it works. Now, these are important things. Paul knows they're important. As the letter goes on, he'll talk about, you know, maybe you do need to stop doing that thing. But it's not an entrance criteria. It's something the Spirit will actually help you do. The Spirit will give you the ability to do those things. So they may be important to stop doing those things. Those things may be important, but they're not how you get into the community. So just last month, the U.S. Surgeon General said that in our nation right now, loneliness is a public health crisis. That people who are lonely, and they've got different ways of measuring this, People who are lonely have a 29% increased risk of heart disease. They have a 32% increased risk of stroke. They have a 50% increased risk of developing dementia. And they have a 60% increased risk of premature death. So there is a loneliness public health crisis in our country. I'm reading a book by a psychologist named Robin Dunbar. Have any of you, just out of curiosity, anybody heard of Dunbar's number? Dunbar's number is the idea that our brains are only big enough to hold about 150 relationships in them. So it's like, I know, you know, who their uncle is, or, you know, I've talked to them, I know their, I know their story a little bit, that when you get that 151st person, you know, then what happens is you lose somebody on the other end. It's like one comes in and the other has to go. Our brains are only so big. So that that's based on research he did um, uh, uh, back in the, uh, around the time of the millennium. And um, since then he's, he's been exploring friendship. He's been looking at friendship, what friendship is. And he says, he says um, in this book, Friends, he says the number and quality of our friendships has a bigger influence on our happiness, health, and even mortality risk 
than anything else we can do, except in the case of death, um, giving up smoking. It's the only thing that can compare to having um, uh, 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 the right number of friendships. He says that's about five and um, high quality friendships. And if you don't meet that criteria, if you're saying, "Well, wait, I don't. I've only got two friends, or whatever," he's he's got he's got advice for you. He says the best way to make friends is to have shared activities where you do something together. And he says, and the one that is best of all, the best way to make friends is to sing together, to sing songs together. Now I ask you, should the church be knocking this out? The church should totally be knocking this out, right? We have shared activities. We work together. We worship together. And yes, we sing together. We sing together. And it's good for your health. It's good for your health. Okay? And it's the best way to make friends, too. So, so, um, there are, the, the church should be knocking this out of the park. This is the provision that God has made for us. God knows this, this, these facts about loneliness and friendship. God knows those things. God wants us to be part of a community. But sometimes we put in our own little rules. You know, you need to start doing that. You need to stop doing that. You need to start singing, right? It's like, no, you don't, right? We are part of our community because of our faith, not because of the things we do. When... When I joined that company and they invited me to the party, I said, you know, it's not my party. This this is not for me. I had nothing to do with this event. I won't even know what they're celebrating. And then Jeff Donnelly stopped by my office. Jeff and I had just met that week. I didn't know anything about him. He didn't know anything about me, but he said, no, you're part of the community. This party is for you. This is what the church should be. The church should be like Jeff. We should be telling people, you are absolutely part of the community. The only criterion is, do you believe that God is who he says he is and God can do the things that he's promised to do? This is what defines our community. Everything else comes later. Let's be like Jeff. Let's be that kind of church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We don't ask the same things, but too often your church creates extra criteria. We don't, we, we don't make our community conditional on keeping Torah, but we make it conditional on the right kind of behavior, the right kind of sexuality, the right kind of, of um, uh, uh, sobriety. Help us to remember that, that the relationship that we want to have with you. The relationship that people need and were made to experience, the community of the children of Abraham, comes to us not because of what we can do, but because of what Jesus did in taking the curse of the law on himself. Help us to be that kind of community together for the good of the world. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let me invite you now to stand as you're able and join in singing our hymn.
not right. That's not the right word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and forevermore. Amen.